this is the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. I'm Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Levock and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. This is a podcast where we centre and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. So on today's episode, Michelle and I are here to talk to you about alexithymia and interception. So what are these concepts, you might ask or wonder? Alexithymia was developed in 1972 as a concept by a person called Sifnios, and it's actually rooted in the Greek word meaning no words for emotions. So in alexithymia, um, there's a cognitive component and an emotional component in the way that people recognize and communicate emotional states. And alexithymia has the following features. So number one, differences in identifying and describing subjective feelings. Two, difficulty differentiating between feelings and the physical sensations of emotions. And three, an externally orientated cognitive style. So maybe more paying attention to external things rather than internal states of being. With something like alexithymia or with alexithymia, um, it's important to remember that it's on a spectrum. So there's going to be people in the population that um, experience like high levels of alexithymia and people who experience lower levels of alexithymia. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's one of those nature versus nurture kind of debates. And I, as with anything, it's usually a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B, you know. So um, do you naturally have more difficulty um, identifying, distinguishing between noticing, perceiving your interoceptive cues, which we've talked about previously on the podcast, you know, our internal sensations. Potentially that's just kind of your baseline. You have a harder time doing that. And also, were you taught a language structure for that? Were you taught how to perceive, notice, and communicate some of those internal states? And often what we find for people who have what we might think of as quite profound alexithymia or a lot of difficulty with that, um, they might naturally have much more difficulty internally perceiving and may have had little to no instruction on how to actually do that. Whereas we might have someone on the other end who maybe naturally has a bit of a harder time distinguishing and interpreting and noticing some of those internal cues, but they had lots of support and scaffolding around um, how do you do that, direct instruction, language provision around that. So the functional impact of that is a lot less for person B. Yeah, I I remember first coming across alexithymia or the term of it actually um, in a therapy for men book. (laughs) (laughs) Classic. Mm, Which says a lot, um, but... (laughs) I think that uh, with some of the classic perceptions around autism, alexithymia has in the past been perceived as something more that autistic men probably have as a feature of their autism. Um, But again, I think if you look at gender roles in society and the different, I guess, social training um, and expectations in society, you'll see that often in 
families with little boys, like how often are emotion or feeling words or how often is the emphasis on describing and explaining your emotional states in place versus the socialization of little girls? Yeah, and I think that's actually borne out in the research that, again, this is a generalization. There's obviously individual differences um, amongst different families. But generally speaking, we use so much more of a variety of emotion words with young girls than we do compared to young boys. And my belief, and I'm sure this isn't an original thought, um, but, you know, what I kind of strongly feel is that one of the reasons why um, boys and men often are so or demonstrate their anger so viscerally or that's their kind of go-to emotion is that that's really only the only emotion that they were taught about as littlies or the only emotion that as a society we kind of condone in men or, or young boys, you know, boisterous, angry, you know, a very kind of externalization of that. Whereas for girls, we have a lot more allowance for some of those more vulnerable feelings, lonely, sad, um, upset, embarrassed. It's much more acceptable socially for girls to feel that. Whereas, you know, if you're a boy and you've been hurt or you feel sad or you feel rejected, it's kind of like, okay, well, what are you going to do about it? Right. And anger is a really important emotion. And I think the reverse is true for girls, whereas girls are almost shamed for feeling angry. But yes, totally agree with you that it's the way that we kind of socialize young children has a massive impact on how they then come to view the experiences that they're having um, and the emotions that they're having. Yeah, and I think absolutely girls and women can experience alexithymia, particularly um, if they're on the spectrum, but often I think, depending on what you're interested in, like uh Again, this is a generalization, but often girls are quite interested in forming friendships and relationships and then kind of see, okay, well, maybe I need to learn about emotions and social communication because this is something I'm interested in and therefore I'm motivated to learn about this. So yeah, often we see girls going on to develop some more skills in those areas perhaps uh, later on in life, like in teenage years in high school when socializing becomes more complex and has more rules um, and social exclusion happens more often for people. Yeah, and particularly, again, for those girls who don't seem to be able to naturally kind of get all the socialization and the emotional rules. So that's a really big motivator for autistic girls and women to almost, you know, cognitively learn all of that stuff. Um, I will say too, though, that it's really common for autistic girls, both in primary school and high school, to have many more sick days than their neurotypical peers. And often that internal kind of overwhelm or emotional distress is manifested physically in the bodies of individuals who struggle with their interoception or who have alexithymia of some form. Because, you know, we've, we've talked on previous episodes about loud versus quiet interoception cues, right? And our loud interoception cues is feeling unwell, bladder, bowels, hunger, tiredness, pain. Um, and sometimes when, 
you know, our body realizes that we're not perceiving some of those more quieter cues of I'm overwhelmed, I'm burnt out, I'm sad, I'm upset, I'm stressed, it can manifest that distress in these louder cues of physicality as a way of getting us to rest. And sometimes individuals who use kind of sickness or sick days as a way to regulate have insight into that and they might feel like, well, I know that I don't feel sick in the sense of I'm physically unwell, but this is the language that I know around my body doesn't feel good or I don't feel good. And sometimes we might not have insight into that. Sometimes we might genuinely feel like, yeah, I think I'm coming down with something. I think I'm really sick. I think I am physically unwell. Yeah. So it sounds like alexithymia and interception are quite linked, but perhaps alexithymia is more about those cognitive and emotional states, um, whereas the interception is more about like bodily functions and bodily information. Well, I would say kind of yes and no. I think interception is more of a catch-all comprehensive term where interception is our ability to be aware of everything going on inside our body, all of our internal cues. Some of those are more those kind of physical cues and some of them are more our subtle sort of emotional states. And you're right, I think alexithymia is more referring to our ability to perceive and then communicate those emotional states. Mm -hmm, Yeah. mm So you're right in that it's really common or more common for autistic individuals to experience alexithymia of some form um, and to experience difficulty with their interception. And one of the things that uh, you'll often be asked, for example, as a parent, if you're taking your child to get diagnosed is uh, information around their interception. So toileting, um, hunger cues, tired cues, pain cues, how do they respond and react and perceive some of that stuff? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, often once you get to adulthood or older, you might be more aware of some of those things. But in the early childhood years, that's really where we see some of those first markers of interceptive difficulties. So the definition of the term interception actually comes from a person called Sherrington in 1948, and it refers to stimuli that originate inside the body and comprises sensations coming from things like the gastrointestinal tract, our urinary and reproductive tracts, our circulatory system, and respiratory systems. The the general point of having this eighth sense or sense of interception is so that we can sense what our body actually needs and help our body maintain homeostasis. So homeostasis just means balance. So when our body's out of balance, it's in our best interests for survival to be able to read those cues and then take action to keep our body in a balance that's helping us to survive. And when we think about all the things that go into interception, it's really sort of three different um, steps, I guess, or, or elements. So the first is actually being able to perceive the sensation. The next is being able to notice that change in state or notice um, where it is, what's it telling you, where's it coming from, kind of noticing that actual state change. And then the third element is actioning that. 
appropriately. So if we think about, for instance, um, a hunger cue, someone who has really good interoception might notice at 1.30, you know, maybe they had lunch at 12, they might notice a little niggle of, oh, I'm starting to get a tiny little bit hungry. On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being absolutely famished, 1 being super, super full, I might say that I'm about at a three right now. It's not really a major issue. Um, I don't need to eat right this second. If I look at the clock, it's 1.30. I know I'm going to have a break at three. Yeah, I think I can last till three. Then it's about 2.50 and they notice that their hunger cue is now like at about a six, right? So they think, oh, thank God I am so excited to go on my break and eat something. Before I talk to anyone, I need to just make sure I'm getting my food prepped. I can chat while I prep my food, but if I don't eat on this break, I am going to be famished. So that individual is noticing, A, what signal that they're getting. This is a hunger cue. What the state change is, you know, throughout those different state changes, so lower levels, higher levels, and then they're actioning that appropriately. Can I wait? Do I need to eat right this minute? What's going to happen if I don't follow that cue? Someone who has a hard time with their interoception might they have their lunch at 12, they're working away, they don't notice that their body is giving them that hunger cue at, you know, 1.30, keep working it gets to 2.50, so 10 minutes before lunch break, their hunger cue is probably now at a six. They might notice, I don't feel good. There's something off about how I feel. I'm not sure where it's coming from. I'm not sure what it's telling me. Uh, it's not super bad though. I'm, I'm just going to ignore it. Then they get an email at three o'clock saying, oh, can you just do this thing? And they think, yeah, sure. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to push through this lunch break. Then it gets to their finishing time at five and all of a sudden, almost like it's just been slapped in their face, they think, oh my God, I'm going to pass out if I don't eat something. I'm literally going to black out. And all of a sudden it's this massive crisis um, and they can't talk to anyone. They might have a big emotional reaction if someone asks something else of them, but it's kind of this big issue that had they identified an earlier, like lower levels of hunger, they would have been able to address earlier. We can think about that across all different areas of both our loud interoceptive cues and our quiet interoceptive cues. You know, we can think about that in terms of toileting, you know, either being, I'm totally fine. Oh my God, I'm going to pee my pants or poo my pants, <laughs> <laughs> um, which a lot of children experience. Um, we can think about that in terms of tiredness. I'm fine, 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 fine oh my God, I'm about to collapse. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of pain, not really noticing pain cues until mm -hmm. they're really bad. Mm -hmm. And we can also think about that in terms of our emotional states, emotional cues. Mm -hmm. So not really noticing low levels of stress or overwhelm or sadness or frustration and only really noticing when things are like a seven or above, you know. So I um, am fine, 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 fine. Everything's fine or it's an explosion or yeah. it's a meltdown. Yeah. I mean, this is totally explaining why I get really hangry <laughs> <laughs> if I don't eat regularly. Um, and it also explains why a lot of people in my family get hangry as well. <laughs> um, but I can just think of examples too of people being able to push through and almost having, I guess, like the superhuman power. Um, like, for example, when we were renovating our house, my husband would 
start painting the walls and he would actually just go for 10 hours without a toilet break, without drinking water, without like eating. And he could just be painting without a rest or a break for that 10 hours and somehow magically do that and push through. Um, I don't know how good that actually is for his health, like long term. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it was very productive at the time um, and meant that we painted the room a lot quicker. So there was <laughs> you an win upside. some, you lose some. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, he was like, um, Monique, why are you taking so many breaks? Like, why do you need to take a break every half an hour or every hour to get a drink of water or go to the toilet? Like, why are you stopping for lunch? You know, he, um, yeah, had difficulty understanding why I needed those things. And that's an interesting point there because we're talking about these loud interoceptive cues, you know, information from um, our stomach and our bladder and bowels and, and our need to rest and that type of thing. But when we think about people who struggle even with their quieter interoceptive cues, so emotional states, in the same way that your husband had a really hard time understanding why you needed to take a break to get a drink of water or go to the bathroom or whatever it might be, if we struggle with our own interoceptive cues, we can have a really hard time or a harder time understanding at a felt level, at an embodied level, emotional experiences of other people. And, you know, there's a big difference between cognitively grasping emotions and lots of really bright neurodivergent people, of course, understand the concept of emotions, understand how they cognitively work and can understand the logic of why someone might feel X if they're in Y situation. But what often people who have interoceptive difficulties have a harder time with, or people who have some form of alexithymia have a harder time with, is that embodied experience or ability to relate or really know what someone's feeling. Because if you don't know that in yourself, you can't know it in someone else. Yeah, I think um, that difference between the cognitive knowledge or theoretical knowledge of some of these things and then having that embodied experience is really important. For example, it wasn't until like my 20s when I did an acceptance and commitment therapy exercise called the body scan. Um, that I actually really connected the theoretical knowledge of emotions and then being paired with certain body sensations and cues with actually examining that within my own body through that mindfulness perspective and actually finding those descriptors of those sensations and cues within myself. And it was like a massive discovery and like something clicked inside and I was like, oh, like actually this heaviness in my stomach means, you know, X, Y, Z emotion. Wow. Like I hadn't actually felt that on an embodied level before. Um, like even in yoga classes and things like that, I hadn't really made that connection between the physical and the mental. And I think, a lot of neurodivergent people run the risk of living life in their heads and not actually making those connections to their bodies. But our bodies give us really important information and it is good to have a bit of that balance there where you can. You know, for me, it was a skill that over time I was able to practice and actually learn and improve that skill um, and improve that neuroplasticity and people might have different abilities or priorities around that, 
But I think it's important to know that things like interception are a skill that you can build upon if it doesn't come naturally to you. And I love what you were saying there around um, our emotions just being information because this is why our emotions also fit under the interception umbrella because interception is really about us perceiving, noticing, and uh, accurately interpreting information from inside our body. Some of that information comes with very clear instructions. You have a full bladder, go pee. Um, you're hungry, go eat, right? The same thing is also true to a degree with our emotions too. And for someone who has a really hard time with that interception of emotions, what happens is you run the risk of actually not having your emotions as advisors as they should be. You know, if you think of your brain like a corporation, the ideal employment position for your emotions is your advisors. They're saying, hey, um, we've got this information. This is how something landed with us. This is how we're interpreting this or, you know, this is what we're feeling. You don't want your emotions to be the boss or to be the captain. And what happens when we don't notice or perceive our emotions until they're at a really high level is by the time that they're at a seven, we've basically disengaged our human brain, our cognitive kind of thinking brain, our neocortex. And we're really in a position or a state where we're completely run by our emotional brain. So developing some of that embodied experience of emotion, connecting your felt sensations to how that actually feels in your body, that can really help you interpret your emotions when they're at lower levels and then you're in a much better position you're much more regulated and settled and you're in a state where you can use that emotion cue or use that emotional information as just information and then you get to decide what to do with it rather than constantly kind of flipping or switching between completely overrun by emotion or completely blocking it out you know unintentionally Yeah, and I I do wonder as well um, around interception. I know that it is a sensory process that we have in our body, and I know a lot of people who are neurodivergent have different sensory processes such as um, undersensitivity to stimulus or oversensitivity to different stimulus. And I wonder if people are quite sensitive to sensory information in their environment or they're in a really stressful, overwhelming environment, if having interception differences in terms of not picking up on those cues and that information, I actually wonder if that's self-protective in a way. Yeah, that's a great point and I think a great way to think about it and it makes a lot of sense, right? If you are hypervigilant to information around you, so information coming from our five external senses, you are naturally going to just be less aware of information coming from our internal senses. And the other point there is that if you're in that threat state, then your body naturally wants to focus on the information around it because that's where the threat is coming from. The threat isn't coming from an internal stimuli, it's coming from external. So yeah, I would agree with you. I think it is protective to kind of turn down the volume on some of those internal sensations um, so that there's more space or, or you know, it's, we can be more reactive to our external stimuli. 
Yeah. And I think it's important to just be mindful then if there is that protective factor involved that, um, you know, if there are all these practices around trying to, you know, quote unquote, improve people's interception skills that we just be mindful of the level of stress or emotional arousal or, um, sensory sensitivity that a person has. And just understand that sometimes turning that volume up on a person's internal sense in itself can be potentially stressful or confronting or overwhelming. So it's important to do that in the right way and in the right environment. For sure. And I think, you know, when we are starting to explore interceptive awareness with people, we really want to start with some of those louder, more functional cues and slowly develop in non-stressful situations, in non-threatening situations, that ability to just tune into and be aware of what your body is telling you. Because the more that you're able to do that, actually, we know that that can increase distress tolerance down the track, you know, at more intense levels of emotion. Because if you think about it, you know, if you're only experiencing emotion when it's a seven or above out of 10, that is intolerable. That's horribly distressing. And so this is why, exactly as you say, Monique, we start to build that interoceptive awareness in non-confronting, non-threatening situations um, or through non-threatening experiences so that the individual can then get a little bit better at sitting with some of those discomfort cues. And what that does is that when emotions kind of get to higher levels, it feels more familiar and it's sort of like, okay, I know what to do with this, actually. I knew, I knew what to do when I was a level five frustrated. And so now I know what I can do when I'm a level seven frustrated. I think there are, um, you know, a few studies around things like yoga and mindfulness that help people improve that body-mind awareness and connection. And I know those are some things that sometimes we bring into therapy with people if they're wanting to work on that area. Um, sometimes it's really exploring what sensations and internal cues mean for that individual person, because we all have different cues and different sensations. Like it can't be just generic. And sometimes it's great to explore that through things like art or going, you know, like what color does that sensation represent for you? And you don't necessarily need to use emotion labels or words, although I think it is always a good idea to like work on your emotional literacy. And I, I really wish that some of this stuff was worked on in school, like so oh, that, for sure. yeah, we like all learn this mm, um, mm. rather than having to rely, do you know what I mean? On like a piecemeal approach. Yeah, I totally agree. I think emotional literacy and interception should be a standard part of the primary school curriculum. And it's really interesting that you bring that up actually, because some great studies that have been done in the last five years have actually shown that when teachers consistently, and this is, you know, a research study, so they had consistent, you know, application of these um, kind of processes. When teachers consistently do an interoceptive activity at the start of the day, when kids come in from morning tea and when they come in from lunch, they found across multiple schools that the instances of behavioral issues, detentions, suspensions, all these things that were previously being dealt with reactively actually declined 
significantly because the students were actually much more aware of their own internal state. And I guess, you know, it's one of these things where there's such a frustration point between the lag between research and application. Mm. You know, it would be amazing if all schools tomorrow put that in place. But we know that these types of things take a really long time to filter down and actually be actioned. Yeah, that makes me even think about like, where do adults do this for themselves as well? Like, I don't know a lot of people that have an interception break, you know, or activity for themselves at the start of their day in their lunch break. And then then at the end of their day as a standard sort of practice, because again, I think, um, you know, even though it's important to recognize that everyone has differences in their interceptive skills, uh, interceptive skills are important for maintaining our physical health and well-being. And, you know, we only have one body to carry us through this lifetime. So it is really important that we look after it. And, you know, we've talked about hunger and thirst. And I know quite a few neurodivergent individuals just forget to drink water. Um, Just something as simple as keeping hydrated is so important, not just for our physical health, but also our mental health and our ability to have good cognition. And, you know, one of the other interceptive skills is being able to regulate uh, and have knowledge of our perception of temperature. So, Again, there'll be people who are neurodivergent who have trouble adjusting to or picking up on, you know, okay, it's going to be really hot today, so I need to wear appropriate clothing. And then you could be at risk of developing heat stroke or even in really cold weather being at risk of developing things like frostbite or hypothermia. Um, So, again, some of these things are actually pretty important for our well-being to learn some of these skills In addition, being able to notice uh, pain sensations. So there are individuals who are neurodivergent who, for whatever reason, haven't picked up on the fact that they've broken a bone or, you know, their appendix is about to burst. And then they actually receive delayed medical treatment, which can have pretty bad consequences. So, you know, not to be all doom and gloom, but I do think it's important to emphasize that these skills are important for maintaining that homeostasis. So, Monique, you were talking earlier about how even as adults, we don't really have interception breaks throughout our day. We don't really kind of actively and intentionally focus on some of those interceptive cues. And you're absolutely right. Unless we make a concerted effort to do that, it's really hard. It's not usually part of our day. And to be able to develop or grow some of your interceptive skills or your interceptive awareness, it is actually about intentionally tuning in to some of those cues. That's how you build those networks, right? Because interceptive difficulties mean that you are not conscious, you are not aware of these cues. It doesn't mean that they're not happening. So to build our interceptive skills, we need to do that intentionally and consciously. So I'm just wanting to run you guys through just a couple of activities that I often suggest to clients uh, to build some of those interceptive cues. So we're going to start with what we call our loud interceptive cues, and then we'll move on to an activity around some of our more quiet interceptive cues, so our emotions. 
So I usually suggest to clients that they start off by setting a timer on or setting an alarm on their phone or on their watch at two points during the day. So these activities literally only take like 30 seconds. So it's not like you're going to have to make a big time commitment. Um, It's just having that kind of consistent time where you stop and reflect and sort of build that reflection. So engaging in an interceptive task involves two rounds of changing a state and focusing and noticing how you perceive that state change. So an example of this might be holding a hot or a cold drink in your hand. So first step is hold the drink in your palm. You need to really focus on how the skin in your hands is perceiving that and where you feel that sensation. So it might be in your palm might be further up your arm as well. If it's hot, I mean, don't burn yourself, but um, if it's hot or if it's really cold. So whereabouts are you feeling that? Then release. So take your hand off the cup. Notice the difference in state uh, for the skin on your hand and further up your arm if you perceived it there. And you're really tuning into and thinking about how that part of your body feels different now that you've let go of the cup. Now just repeat that. So grasp the hot drink again or the cold drink and repeat that first step and then release and repeat the second step and you're done. So you could do that with what I just suggested there, so a hot or cold drink. You could do that with stretching or with muscle holds, so wall squats. Um, You could do that with cardio activities, so noticing, you know, your heart rate, um, doing like mountain climbers or something like that. Um, You could do other temperature change activities like being in the shower, so stepping into the warm water, stepping out, stepping into the warm water, stepping out. You could do that with diaphragmatic breathing as well, so slowing down your breathing, breathing in for five seconds, holding, breathing out for five seconds, and then afterwards noticing if you perceive a change in your internal sensory experience. So there's lots of different ways you can do that, but it always follows those same four steps. So notice the state change, release or stop doing the activity, notice that state change, and then repeat. When we think about some of those more quiet um, interoceptive cues, so our emotional cues, we can also go through the same process with them. And the process I'm about to suggest, I'm not suggesting that you do this when you're in a meltdown or having a panic attack. This is when you might be having an experience of a mild level of irritation, overwhelm, upset, um, anxiety, frustration, whatever it might be. So the tricky thing about our emotions is that as soon as we notice that we're having them, our brain will immediately create stories about what's happened. It'll apply a meaning to it. And the problem with that, or what can be the problem with that, is that can often amplify the emotion that we're experiencing. And this goes back to what Monique was saying earlier around living in our head versus living in our body. When we experience our emotion, do we immediately interpret that cognitively and create a cognitive story about it? Or do we actually just allow our body to experience that emotion, sit with it, let it dissipate, and then decide what we want to do with it or what it was telling us or what information it had to give us? So this is an activity very similar to the first one that I ran through, but it's one that we do with emotions. So the first thing that we want to do is notice and perceive the sensation in your body. Name what you're feeling. For example, I'm feeling stressed. I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'm feeling sad. And we also want to identify where and how we're feeling that. 
I feel that as tightness in my chest. I feel that as a lump in my throat. I feel that as nausea in my stomach. I feel that as dizziness. I feel that as a headache. I feel that as a racing heart. I feel that as shaky hands or, you know, whatever comes up for you. Then what I really like to do is rate the intensity of that feeling out of 10. 10 being meltdown panic attack, one being super calm. So you're identifying how intense is this emotion for me right now. What your brain will immediately start to do is try and create a story around this. I'm about to have a panic attack. I can't handle anything. You know, no one cares about me. Life is pointless or whatever stories come up for you when you experience emotions. Want you to try and just stop. Easier said than done. (laughs) But in this moment, that story is just amplifying the feeling. There'll absolutely be a time to evaluate where that feeling was coming from and what it was about, but that time is not right now. Redirect your attention back to the feeling in your body. For example, the tightness in your chest. Try and focus all your attention on just perceiving that sensation and notice if it intensifies, that's okay, Um, if it moves or dissipates or changes. So you're really trying to just focus on that internal sensation. While you're doing that, it can be really helpful to breathe through that. So breathing in through your nose for five seconds, holding and out through your mouth for six seconds. What will happen, and I guarantee you that this will happen if it's a lower level emotion, eventually it will dissipate. Emotion isn't going to just stay in your body forever without having anything happen to it. If you are not creating a story around that emotion, if you're just focusing on perceiving that emotion, it will dissipate. And what the really cool thing is, is when you can practice this, and I'm I'm repeating this for a reason, with low-level emotions, when you practice this with lower-level emotions, what that does is it creates a procedural memory in your body where your body is like, ah, I know how to handle emotions. I have the felt experience of having an emotion and feeling it dissipate. And I survived that and I got through that. And so once that feeling, you you notice it start to drop or dissipate, it can be helpful to then again rate that out of 10. So you're giving yourself a concrete anchor. So, okay, it was at a six and now it's at a three, for example. Before you engage with it again, just do something enjoyable for 10 minutes. Do something that feels good, that's just nice um, and not kind of immediately jumping on thinking about what happened. After you've done that, then again, tune in and think, Okay, where am I out of 10 now? How escalated am I now? Once you feel like you're back in a calm and regulated state, then that's the time to think about what happened. What was that emotion trying to tell you? Why did it come up? What can you do about it? You know, we can't engage effectively with our emotions until we're in that calm brain, that calm state. Want more neurodivergent content? Head to our page on Patreon. Our Patreon supporters receive exclusive and additional content ranging from resources, additional information on episode content, responses to listener questions, book reviews, and mental health tip sheets. You can find a link to our Patreon in the show notes and on our website, www.ndwomanpod.com. We really appreciate your support on this journey as we aim to make quality psychological and mental health care information accessible to everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. 
If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the name The Neurodivergent Woman Podcast or our website ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.